Uh, we have been uh, going through this series on the parables over these last number of weeks. And just a reminder as well, these, these parables, and we've, we've seen much, especially as it pertains to the kingdom, but, but Jesus oftentimes spoke, uh, chose to, to teach very clearly with just a, a message and just uh, straightforward, uh, straightforward words. Other times he chose uh, to speak by way of parable, uh, which he explained in, in Matthew 13. It was a way where with those who had ears to hear, it was clarifying. Uh, for those that don't, it may left many in wonder, like, what is he saying? Um, and so the parables are these, these analogies, these, uh, these pictures that Jesus uses to describe some about the life of the kingdom, what the kingdom is like. Um, and even the relationship which we can have with our Savior. And so he continues to do that in Luke 14 as well. Actually, we'll see it's kind of three different sections uh, that, that we'll notice that Jesus does this uh, in Luke 14, starting in verse 7. So I'd ask you to, to please stand as we uh, read the Word of God together, as we stand as just an act of our uh, submission and longing to hear from the Lord. Luke 14, starting in verse 7 through verse 24. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Let's pray. Our great Father, Lord, the the host 
of the greatest banquet. Lord, we come to you. And just reading these words, Lord, of uh, these words of Christ, of what the kingdom is like, of the humility uh, which is needed, Lord, uh, by your children. God, we ask that we would be humbled coming into your, uh, this time of your word. Uh, God, that you would give us hearts that are open and willing and receptive to hear from you only by your grace, by your Holy Spirit. Uh, remove any distractions uh, from our minds, uh, Lord, so that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are soft and willing to respond in faith. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> So the, uh, the parable of the wedding feast and the banquet. There's a, a story for, uh, for those of you who might remember the name Walter Cronkite, uh, the old uh, newscaster from the 80s, 70s, I'm sure beyond that as well. Uh, but Walter Cronkite, in an interview uh, years ago, he recalled a particular incident which happened to him. He said that uh, he was sailing down the Mystic River in Connecticut. And uh, there were a number of tricky turns down one particular channel, uh, and, and even some, some shallow waters that they were heading toward. Uh, and he said there was this time that this boatload of young people sped past, uh, uh, he said, sp- uh, sped past them going the opposite direction. And uh, its occupants, as they were coming up toward his boat, they were waving their arms. And, and, uh, and Walter Cronkite, he said he waved back this cheery greeting. And he was so happy to see these people just waving their arms at him. And the wife said, do you know what they were shouting? And he says, yeah, it was, hello, Walter. And he replied, saying, no. She says, they were shouting, low water. There's low water. And... At that point, Walter then was embarrassed and said, oh, I apparently was thinking that they were here just to greet me, speeding up to my boat just so they could give me this warm welcome. But instead, they were actually trying to warn him of the dangers that were coming up to him. It's just interesting how easily something like that can happen, though. We have something on our mind. We see someone coming from, oh, certainly they're here to disagree with me. I'm, I'm Walter Cronkite. They're here to, to wave their arms, to say hello to me, because I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. And so, instead, that's not what happens. But they're just there. They didn't know who he was. They didn't care who he was. He was just someone who needed to hear this warning. That there's low water up ahead. And if he kept on sailing, uh, that there was going to be a serious, uh, there's a great danger in that. How many disasters, uh, even that we might even think of in our own lives, have been brought on because of pride or because of arrogance? How many different lives can we imagine have been ruined uh, because of pride and arrogance? How many Darwin Awards have been won because of arrogance and pride and thinking you could do something uh, when instead there was a great danger up ahead? But it isn't just physical harm, which is the the ultimate consequence, but spiritual destruction. The famous proverb that pride goeth before the fall, pride goes before destruction. Yet putting ourselves first, striving after uh, having others think of us in a certain way, making sure we get ours, what is due to us, it all continues to be such a temptation for each and every individual. It looks different ways, but it remains to be a a significant temptation. 
even when we know the destructive nature of it all. And Jesus, he points us toward a better way. The way of the kingdom, which is a way of humility. A way of forsaking those preoccupations with ourselves. And he uses, Jesus here does, he uses his circumstances there at this, at this banquet to share the heart of what it means to live and serve and thrive in the kingdom of God. And it doesn't look the way that we would expect it would. In our text, there's this, uh, this, this one event going on, but in that, there are actually, you might have noticed, there are three different audiences which Jesus addresses. Uh, he first addresses those that were invited to the feast. Uh, then he speaks to the host of the feast. And then, find, and then he lastly speaks to this interrupting man uh, who, who has something to say to Jesus in this whole deal. And each shift in the conversation further underscores actually the one point that Jesus is making about the heart of the one who follows after him. And each time, though, it is nuanced to draw out some unique facet. And all of this starts actually with a sick man who comes to Jesus, actually even before our text, in in verses 1 through 6. If you look up there a little higher up in your Bibles, where it says that one Sabbath, when he went to dine, as Jesus, at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. That is not the disease my uh, fantasy wide receivers keep having every year, but this is a disease concerning water retention of what we'd probably classify now as uh, having heart failure. Um, And Jesus responded to the lawyers, it says in verse 3, and Pharisees saying, It is lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not. But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. And the background of this parable is this miraculous Sabbath healing. It seems like Jesus goes out of his way to like he could heal someone on the Friday, but he's like, I'm going to wait till the Sabbath and I'm going to heal him then just so I can have an audience and a conversation. The Pharisees repeatedly get upset with Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. It was a position even for them, even of pride, since they did not expend energy on the Sabbath. They upheld the law or their understanding of the law because it wasn't just simply God's law, but the laws of the the Jewish fathers who gave rule after rule about just what was allowed until someone worked on the Sabbath. Uh, You could walk no more than 1,999 paces on the Sabbath, but step number 2,000... You've sinned. You have broken the Sabbath. And on they go with so many different absurd laws. They saw themselves as the spiritual and moral elite. And Jesus points them to something far greater than a number of steps. In fact, uh, Kent Hughes once described the spiritual life of the Pharisees as the, quote, domestication of real faith into humanly attainable standards. 
that we bring everything down of what it means to be Christian into just simply something that I can do or avoid. And that's what it means to be a Christian. And that's what it means to be a follower of the Lord. And that's really what the Pharisees were, were going after and pursuing after. And sadly, it wasn't just limited to them, but it is a, a mindset and a thinking which, which lingers even in the old man, even in the, the old nature of God's people. And this is what Jesus calls them out for and points them and us toward, again, a better way. Even there, then, in our text, in verses 7 through 11, Jesus is, is calling them to, to humility, where they are presumptuous. They are invited to this feast. And they each chose to sit in these places of honor, assuming that the seat of honor was for them. This is a practice which is maybe a little bit outside of our norms, but, but really we do have some vestiges of it in our own wedding feasts, uh, in our own wedding banquets, uh, when there is the, the reception. Uh, many times those tables and chairs that are closest to the bride and to the groom are reserved for, for family and for close friends. And then there's almost a sense which the closer you are, the more prestigious your position before the bride and the groom, you know, in theory. The Pharisees are, are walking into the reception hall, plopping down right next to mom and dad of the bride. For certainly there isn't anyone else in this room with their kind of status. And so certainly they are the ones who need to take these these greatest seats. The status is so important. I think it is. There are so many markers. Even for the Pharisees, there were markers which would distinguish your status among others. Actually, in, uh, later on in Luke chapter 20, Jesus calls out the scribes for their, their long robes, their formal public greetings, and even seats of honor in public places, those markers of their status which they lay a hold of so tightly, uh, even seeing that as their, uh, their, their very identity. And we have our own markers. This is not something, again, which is so foreign to 21st century America. In our day, it's wealth as a marker of your status in this society. It's your career. What do you do for your career? What is your education? What is your, your title that, that goes before your name? What, is your, what do you look like? Physical appearance has become a marker of even your, your status. What we wear what we drive, what we own. We gain status in others' eyes by having these things. Perhaps our issue, like the Pharisees, is that of being presumptuous, presuming, uh, going ahead and making an assumption, making a declaration of judgment before it even happens, if this is the way that it is, this is even what I rightly deserve that we feel like what we've attained, we feel like what we've worked for demands that others should respect us. We've earned it. However, perhaps we are feeling our inadequacy in this area. Perhaps it isn't just simply, yes, I've earned it, I deserve it. Perhaps it's, no, I, I, don't earn, I don't deserve that first seat you know, at the table. I'm too inadequate. Our issue is that we, we think we need to be at the head table. We feel embarrassed because we think our status doesn't measure up to others. 
honestly, if we find ourselves comparing markers, either we're saying, oh no, they're, they're much greater than I am, or oh no, I need to be at a greater status than them. If we invest in that game, if we play that game, regardless of what side we come out on, we have already embraced the mindset of self-exaltation and being presumptuous. This wasn't just a struggle for these wicked Pharisees. In Luke 9, we see one of the multiple examples of the, of the disciples. Those who walked closest with Jesus, that they struggled with being presumptuous. Presuming that their sacrifice, that their efforts, that their literal closeness and proximity to the Savior has earned them the title as the greatest disciple. Who is the greatest? Who will be the greatest in your kingdom? The truth of the matter is, we can be sure we are moving away from Christ-like humility when we are comparing ourselves to others. There's nothing wrong with desiring encouragement. There's nothing wrong with desiring affirmation. But there is something different entirely with having a mindset of affirmation being demanded as what is due and not as a gift that's to be received. Jesus gives us the result of such a mindset. It says there that for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus also says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Putting ourselves as subservient to the plan and the program of King Jesus, to the person of King Jesus, demonstrates where our allegiance lies. It lies to the Savior who took the lowest place for us. Not only is there this humility that Jesus describes the need for, but he turns attention to, to the host. He says, like, you're, you're, not, you know, you're not off the hook either. And he calls him out and his need for, his, his desperate need for selflessness. And he says to him there in verse 12, And he said to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." Jesus is an equal opportunity prophet. Like Oprah giving out cars, everyone gets called out for their sin. It is easy to be kind to those who can give you something good in return. It's easy. I mean, it's crazy actually how difficult we sometimes make it. Like we still are hesitant to be kind to those that even can genuinely give us something very good and that that we know will respond in gratitude and in grace. And yet I find my own heart wrestling that I still don't really want to, though. I'd rather not. Yet there is something, though, that doesn't really cost us much to show grace and goodness and kindness to those who have much to offer in return. 
The world can do this. The world can be very nice to people that they like. They can be very nice to people that can scratch their back right back. That's not much of a sacrifice when we are looking out for our own end. This host was inviting people who can offer him status, money, prestige. He invited these Pharisees. It's interesting that Jesus was there. I was wondering what, you know, if he really thought that he was actually being really, you know, sensitive to Jesus and this whole other group, that this is something kind of beyond them. This, is, this isn't just the Pharisees. This is some other group that, you know, I'm going to actually, it's going to cost me something. Jesus doesn't have money. He doesn't have a whole lot of power. doesn't have a whole lot of sway. At different times, did have larger crowds than others, though. But Jesus calls him out. says he, uh, that, that, that he sacrificed to get the best food, maybe he would think, this, this host. I did what I could to get the best food here. I sacrificed to get the best wine. I sacrificed to get the best music. He cleaned and he prepared. Great. But of course he would want to impress this crowd. If they enjoyed themselves, just imagine what they could do for him in return. Paul told the church in Philippi, in Philippians 2.4, when he, he describes the, the mind of Christ, and he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. This is the running theme from Genesis to Revelation. This is what it means to express love. This is what it means to show grace. This is what it means to show genuine humility. Is, is not I'm going to simply be ni- and even sacrifice something of myself, but it's going to do so in a way where I expect nothing in return. Simply for the sake of the love of my Savior and simply for the sake of my brothers and sisters. Full stop. I'm going to do this. From Genesis to Revelation, the concern with God's people has always been the heart. It's never been about just simply doing the action. It has always been, God has always been interested and God has always been concerned with the heart of his people. How often do I sacrifice my time for others simply because I know it will look good on me? Guilty. Ultimately, for whose good do I sacrifice for? A lot of times it's my own. One writer once remarked how we tend to see people in three basic categories. We tend to see people as obstacles from us not being able to accomplish the goals that we want. As competitors, as those that simply I'm just going to strive to kind of beat up on a lot of times or as tools to help me achieve where I want to go. All three of these categories put others in light of what they can do or not do for me. And how often do we look at people in those same three categories? Jesus calls us to something better. He says to respond in selflessness, to Go after the, the crippled, the lame, those who can offer us nothing in return. And especially if you think of this, this first century ancient Near Eastern society, 
there were plenty of people around them that the way that society was working, they, they could offer them nothing of, of prestige or power or money. There were opportunities for it, a plenty. And he says to them, you are blessed. God blesses those who have that mindset. It isn't simply you cannot show kindness to those that do have power. It's not that. It's what is our heart in the middle of it. God knows when you receive nothing in return for your sacrifice. God knows. God knows our heart. It is not in vain when we do sacrifice something of ourselves, of our time, of our money, or whatever it is. It is not in and, and they can bring us nothing. No one ever finds out about it. Nobody knows. God knows. How often do we feel like nothing we do has any weight to it? How often does a mother sacrifice her time, her energy, for those in her house, and she hears no word of praise? She gets no status advancement. And you will be blessed. How often do we strive in the, in the workforce, at our, at our jobs, and feel like it is to, to know that we are doing what we ought to do. We are, are doing exactly what we have been called to do, and it is to, to no gain. We are gaining nothing from it except for the fact that this is my responsibility. And you will be blessed. How often in schools, students... Is there the opportunity to do something kind to someone who you know can offer you nothing back in return? And we do it, and we don't try to hide it because I don't want anyone to know that I just associated with this person. That's not the reason we hide it. But just simply because we just want to show kindness to someone. And you will be blessed, not because of what you receive from from other people, of them praising you, but simply because it was done in response to the kindness shown to you in Christ. Lastly, this humble life of the kingdom is one of sacrifice. Notice there, the, the, the longest section where Jesus then responds to this, to this man. And Jesus tells this, uh, this, this story, this parable of this man that had gave this, this great banquet, invited many people. And uh, in that, that day and age when there would be feasts and banquets, what the, the typical protocol was is, okay, I'm going to have, I mean, we kind of do something similar. I'm going to have this, this banquet. It's going to be, you know, two months from now. You know, RSVP, tell me if you're going to be there. Okay, these are the people that are going to be there. They said that they'll be there. Well, on the day of, instead of just getting, you know, like a reminder email, what you'll get is you would send out your servants on the day of, and as soon as it's ready, because these are very elaborate, um, and it would take time, and all kinds of hiccups can possibly happen as well. But when it was ready, uh, the, on these great feasts, they would send their servants out to tell the people, now is the time. Now you can come at any point, and you can come and uh, partake of this feast, which is for you. And as all of that happens, as they go to each of these, uh, these people, one after another, these individuals who had accepted the initial invitation on the day of the feast, now that everything was prepared, they 
forsook their invitation. They denied it. And instead, they went after much lesser things. Went after much lesser things. The field went after the oxen. And I always found the, just the statement, I have uh, married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Doesn't elaborate on that. I don't know what was happening there. Just the fact that you're married is a simple enough. So if those are sending out invitations for this or that, if you're married, you always have that excuse to not go, I'm married, therefore I can't come. I guess it's like a singles feast. Maybe that can happen. Um, if we forsook their invitation, instead they go after much lesser things. What Jesus is calling out, ultimately, is actually the sin of, of self-indulgence. One after another, each person, it's weird because it's a feast, right? But each person denies the feast being offered to them for the sake of their own possessions, for the sake of their own relationships. It seems so extra, kind of calling it that, self-indulgence, because it's, they're taking care of their responsibilities instead of feasting at a banquet. But the master of the house, I mean, he's angry. Each invitee would rather pursue the ease, the comfort of their responsibilities, of the rhythm, the routine of life. It's so much more comfortable. I'm just going to indulge myself and just just do the things I'm already comfortable with, things that I'm already doing. I don't want to get out of this lovely routine that I've built. Then to forsake them for this truly even lavish banquet. Many of us enjoy the bad news slash good news of canceled plans. It's like, oh, we can't make it tonight? Sorry. Yes, I get a free evening. This is going to be great. But not if we are canceling the feast of God for my job. Canceling the feast of God for my home, my family. As good as those things are. The responsibilities even which we, we have. That's what he's saying. There is something much more here. In fact, Jesus picks up this, this theme and clarifies it actually in the next section of Scripture in verse 26. If you jump down, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cost of following Jesus is much higher than we realize. These excuses that these people are using, they seem so legitimate. I have responsibilities, things I have to take care of. Good things. Jesus is saying, the Savior is offering you a banquet. What is going to prevent you from participating in it? Even by His grace, by God's grace, He gives us work. He gives us provision. He gives us family. And for that then to be the the reason why we are not pursuing Christ with our whole hearts. He's saying, come to me. I am the giver of these things. I provide these things. I show you love and affection through these things. Come after me. Run after me. 
explicitly. Jesus is speaking of, of Israel here, of even their, their rejection of Christ. And then his turning away from them as he has been offered to them and turning to the Gentiles. You know, those are the crippled, the lame, you know, those at the, at the highways and all that. He's going, he's going to the outer ends of the earth for his people and praise God for that. Because I know that includes me. So then this is what God invites us to, what he calls us to, to the life which lays down its home, which lays down its work, which lays down the family. Yet is this not what Christ himself has done? Philippians 2, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Was Jesus presumptuous? Did he presume anything when he came to earth? Not at all. He took the lowliest of forms, did not run to the high seat in the town, but instead he associated himself with the lowly. Was Jesus selfish? No. He laid down his rights. He was selfless, laying his own life down for the sake of you, for the sake of me. Was Jesus self-indulgent? Not at all. In fact, what Jesus could have indulged is a life of ease. He traded away for for a life of, of sacrifice. Christ has laid it all down so that we can have life with him. He paid then for our failures. He paid for my presuming, my thinking that I deserve to be at the, at the high table. He paid for my presumptions. He paid for my selfishness. He paid for my self-indulgence with his precious blood. It is not a light thing. And this is actually what the table points us toward, is that. Jesus laid his life down so that I can have life with him. That is why we come back week after week after week because I presume weekly, daily. I am selfish daily. I indulge myself daily. We need to be reminded of his perfect sacrifice. Yet, for those who have known that sacrifice, who have known the, the payment for their sins, Christ calls us to then run with him. He calls us to pick up our cross each day, to deny ourselves each moment, to live with a servant-like humility, a race we are called to run for the rest of our lives. That is exhausting. That is tiring. One day of that, of intentional laying down of myself is exhausting. And look forward to sleep where I sin less, in all honesty. 
There are days we just want to mail it in. Yet, we do not run this race alone. We run this race in the footsteps of our Savior. Those smoother paths without ruts, without ditches, though they tempt us, and weariness discourages us, we continue to run, knowing that every step we take on this path of self-denial brings us nearer to the one who ran it before us. The one who took up his cross, who sacrificed himself, and who humbly serves us. Let's pray. Our Father, Lord, we give you thanks for the example of Christ. We give you thanks for the sacrifice of Christ. We give you thanks for the empowerment which we continue to have through Christ. And God, I pray that you would give us hearts of of sacrifice, of selflessness, and of humility, because it is not something which we can pursue on our own. But God, that as we fix our eyes upon Christ, our Savior, Lord, that you would show us grace. Thank you for the table. Thank you for the reminder. Thank you for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. We get the opportunity now to come to the table, and the kids are going to be coming back in in a second. And, and the reason we invite them back in is so that they can be a part of watching these elements be passed. Uh, because they have, uh, many of them have not professed their faith publicly and uh, met with the elders to declare their trust in Christ, we ask that they not partake. But we want them here so because these are signs of the gospel. These are signs that they see, that they, uh, they can see us touching, that, that we feast on. Uh, that's why we invite them in, is so that they would see these things and then ask us questions. Why do we do this? And then there you go. You have an opportunity to explain the gospel of grace to your children. Because Todd just read that passage that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. That really this table is all about humility. The humility of our Savior who is willing to humble himself to rescue those of us who quite often and many times exalt ourselves. That Jesus meets us in that, that the welcome to this table is about humility. That we come to this table not because of our, uh, our performance, we come to this table to be served. Nothing about the Lord's Supper builds a sense of pride in us. This table celebrates what Jesus has done for a people who could not do it for ourselves. He saved us because we could not save ourselves, and yet he welcomes us. And that's what this table is about. It's his welcome because of the work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection. 
He welcomes us to this table of grace. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, For what I received from the Lord I also passed on to you, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul goes on to conclude, For whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim. It's a declaration. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as much as this is a place of our humility, that we humble ourselves of what Jesus has done, we recognize his humbling of himself so that we might be saved. Paul goes on to say that for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim his death and you ought to be able to discern the body and the blood of the Lord, to examine yourself so that you know that you are right with the Lord. This is a table for the people of God, for those who have humbled themselves before God, who say, I have no hope in myself. I cannot save myself. I deserve the wrath and judgment of God, except for the death and resurrection of Jesus. So to come to this table, you have to be right with God. And if you are trying to be right with God based on your performance, there is no way that will work. To come to this table, you have to be right with God, and you can't do it. So you have to rest on another. To examine yourself is to ask, do you know that you are a sinner in the sight of God on your own? Do you know that you have been saved by Jesus and his work? Have you received and rested upon Jesus alone for salvation? If those are true and you've proclaimed your faith publicly in an evangelical church, that's quite often church membership, where you declare your faith in Christ, then this table is for you. For those who might not be able to say, yes, I'm a sinner, yes, I trust in Christ, yes, I've received, I'm glad you're here, but I'm going to ask that you refrain from partaking so that, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, you don't eat or drink judgment upon yourself. But yet, we get to see the gospel pass before us. As I said, children, we're glad you're here. And we would ask that they refrain until they're able to profess their faith, to discern the body and the blood of the Lord, uh, to understand and recognize and be able to examine themselves before the Lord. Let me pray and set apart these elements uh, for this time. God, we, we come before you and we pray that by the power of the Spirit that you would take ordinary elements, a bread and a cup, and God, use them uh, for a supernatural work, a work in us to convince us of your goodness. Father, to, to bring us yet again to that place of humility that we humble ourselves before you, and in so doing, then you build us uh, by your grace. Uh, Father, thanks for this sacrament, this sign of your, of your grace. God, I pray that you would build our faith as we partake. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.